Well, you know, a couple years ago, some of you, some of you know me pretty well, and a couple years ago, I, I dove deep into deconversion stories. I, you know, I really wanted to understand somebody who would choose to be an atheist, and especially those who, who deconverted, who went from being a Christian to believing that God didn't even exist. And so I dove really deep into deconversion stories. I read all kinds of books. I listened to all kinds of podcasts of people who had made the decision to follow Christ or made the decision to have faith in God, and then they just walked away from it. They gave it up. I, I even read some books by pastors, people who pastored in ministry, just like I did, as long as I have. And who suddenly decided that, you know what, I don't even think God exists. I don't even think God is real. And so they, they deconverted. And so I, I've dove, dove really deep in, into this and, and listened to all, all kinds of things because I want to understand it. And I want to be able to have conversations with people who have decided to be atheists. And, I, and you know, today in 2022, not everybody um, would, would label themselves as an atheist. Some people would uh, label themselves as a humanist. And I, and I have several friends, maybe some of them are even watching because they knew what I was going to talk about today, <laughs> who, who are humanists, you know, who, who, who don't believe in God and believe that, you know, we have everything we need to be able to reason and determine what it is we need to do. And so I, I dove deep into that. And, and here's what I've learned. It, it doesn't happen overnight, okay? It, it's a process. It, 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 it's very much book worthy. It's why so many people write books on it. it, it it's a process, but there is an event that triggers disinterest in God. There's an event and there is usually a tragedy involved. Something bad happens, and this is what really triggers the decision. It's kind of like the nail in the coffin. It's the, the thing that really drives people to make the call and label themselves as atheists or humanists or something different, and, and, and they're disinterested in God. Now, what's interesting, all right, those are deconversion stories, but what's so interesting is that the same is true of conversion stories is that when it comes to conversion, it ha doesn't happen overnight. It's usually a process that leads up to it, but there's an event that triggers interest in God. So what we have all the time happening, you know, just all, all throughout life, is that things happen. Things come up. Moments occur. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. And for some people, it triggers disinterest in God. And for other people, it triggers interest in God. And what's so fascinating is if you started to talk to people and interview people and, and read books on this, is that, yes, there's a group of people that this triggered disinterest in God, but there's other people that would tell you that in the midst of tragedy, they found God. And then there's another group of people who were already Christians that would tell you that tragedy, in the midst of their tragedy, in the midst of their event, it's their faith that got them through it. Isn't that interesting? And the thing is that no matter where you land, is when, when tragedy happens or that event occurs, everybody asks the exact same question. Where is God? And it's fascinating to me that even those that don't believe in God will still ask this question. It doesn't matter what it is. It may be even something that they see in the world, but they ask the question, where is God? And there's some people who don't get the answer that they want, therefore disinterest in God. But there's other people that they find God in the midst of tragedy. Other people that say that their faith is what they needed to be able to get through the event, to get through the tragedy. Now, we've all heard this question before. I can't even count how many times I've heard this question. You've heard this question. You might have even had this question before. And the question is this. If God is good, why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? You know what I'm talking about, right? If God is so good, why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? And there are people, and you again, you might be that person, okay? You might have been drugged here because somebody's being baptized or because somebody told you they were going to be donuts or, you know, whatever it may be. And, and, and you've even had this question, I don't believe in God. Why don't you believe in God? Because, because there's so many bad things happening in the world. If God is so good, then why is there so much injustice and suffering in the world? Now, Here's what I have found talking to these people, reading these books, listening to these podcasts, is that the people who ask this question, they usually look at the general suffering and injustice in the world, not in their own life. So a way to put it is this. 
Those who leverage injustice and suffering as an argument against the existence of God usually leverage justice and suffering experienced by other people, not their own. Right? Would you agree with me? Now, here's the problem with that, though, is that some of the people who you're looking at, you're borrowing their pain and suffering, you're borrowing, borrowing their tragedy, those people who you're looking at and seeing, see, that's proof that there is no God. Those same people who you're borrowing from are people who say that their faith is essential in the midst of tragedy. Now, that doesn't seem fair, does it? That doesn't seem right. Or another way to put it is this. It's, it's disingenuous to leverage the suffering of people who believe in God as evidence that there is no God. See, here's the thing. If your thing is, well, I don't believe in God or I can't follow God because there's pain and suffering in the world, it's completely disingenuous to leverage the suffering, borrow the suffering of other people and use that as evidence because those people would tell you that God is real. Those people would tell you that God got them through their tragedy. As a matter of fact, for every one person I can find who deconverted because of pain and suffering in the world, I could name you a hundred people who converted because of pain and suffering and where God was in the midst of it. Do you know how I know that? Because of all of you. Because every single one of you have had a tragedy in your life. Every single one of you have had pain and suffering. Every single one of you have grieved. And in the middle of it, some of you found faith. And for others of you, you would tell me that it was your faith that got you through it. So it's disingenuous to leverage the pain and suffering of people, of other people, who believe in God as evidence that there is no God. That's just, that argument doesn't stand. I can poke holes through that all day. Now, some of you who are listening to me right now, you're thinking, oh, brother, I'm not borrowing anybody's pain and suffering. I got my own. I'm not leveraging anybody else's suffering. I've got my health concerns. I've got my problems. I had my event, and it is fully mine. And you know what I want to tell you? I want to tell you that I would not judge you for a second. And for some of you, you know what? If I went through what you went through, I would probably believe what you believe too. But here's what we know. Here are the facts. Is that there, you, you've gone through your own tragedy. You've gone through your own event. And it was hard and it was painful and it, and it was terrible. I get that. But you also know that there are people in the world and in the past who have been through what you've been through, if not worse. And yet some of those people maintained and grew in their faith. Okay, so we've got a dilemma here then, right? Because we've got some people who go through tragedy and they lose their faith. They deconvert from their faith. But we've got other people who go through the same thing or worse and they grow in their faith. So here's the question we have to wrestle with. What's the difference? What's the difference then between these two people? Because something is different. Two people can go through the exact same thing and one of them could lose their faith and the other could grow in their faith. What is the difference? Have I piqued your interest yet? <laughs> We're going to talk about that today. But if you're just joining us today, last week we started a brand new series called Resilience. And if you don't know what resilience is, here's a little definition for you. It's the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. Toughness has the ability to spring back into shape. Last week, I, I brought my Stretch Armstrong out here. You know, Stretch Armstrong is this toy that you can, oh, you can bend it, you can twist it, you can do everything you want with it. And, and by the way, Pastor Ashley texted me this week. She goes, I, I put your Stretch Armstrong in your office. Way too many people in church touching it. Kind of weird. Anyway, uh, so please stop touching my my, my stretch arm strong. Uh, but anyway, I, I told you that, you know, when I was a kid, I had one of those when I used to play with it in the 90s, and then one day it broke. It got to the point where I stretched it far enough that it finally did break, and all this stuff came oozing out of it and stuff. And you know what? Every single one of us, we like to think that we are resilient, right? We like to think, oh, man, you can stretch me, you can pull me, you can twist me, you can do whatever you want with me, and I will always go back. I'm tough. You know, actually, you know, we, some of us, we had parents, you know, this isn't a problem, this is an opportunity, son, right? I mean, everybody got that speech, right? We always got those things. But here's what we've learned. In the last three years, experts, okay, this is not me, experts, psychologists are saying that this is our generation's World War II. 
That, 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 that this has been, that the last three years through the pandemic and all the different things that we've, we've experienced with COVID and things that are going on in the world, that this has, been our, this has been our World War II and that there has been trauma that has been done to us. Last week I read all these different quotes from all these different experts, from, from trauma experts to psychologists to, to people who have reported on this and said, like, look, we're just now understanding, just our generation is just now coming up for air and we're realizing, oh my gosh, I can't breathe. Work is harder than it's ever been. I, I feel like I am just treading for air. I cannot keep up. I'm having such a difficult time. And, and we've all felt it. I can't tell you how many texts and emails and DMs I've got of people just like, man, I've, just, I've hit my wall. I'm having a hard time. And, and we're going through something so, so difficult. And, and so for many of us, you know, you ask the question, what, what, what is it? What do I need? What do we need? What do we got to do? And some of you say, well, I need a vacation. But then you went on vacation, and guess what? You're like, I shouldn't have gone on vacation. I came back, there was twice as much work waiting for me. I can't even take a week off. It's not that. Maybe I need a relationship change. Maybe I need this. Maybe I need None of it has worked. None of it has worked. And so you all know what I'm going to say. You all know what I, the answer is Jesus, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what you're missing. Jesus, Jesus. You saw it coming a mile away last week. But here's the thing, is that we are even skeptical about Jesus now. Because we say all the time that Jesus makes your life and makes you better at life. But some of you are like, I don't know because I went through this pandemic and I tried Jesus or I tried Jesus in the past with the last tragedy, with the last event, and it didn't make my life better or make me better at life. And the country would agree with you. In the last five, seven years, we've lost 10% of our country, 10% less of our country believes in God. They have deconverted and I told you why I thought that was. And I said this. I said, in the last decade, Christians have shown very little proof that Jesus makes your life better and makes you better at life. When people look at Christians, and some of you, if you, if you want to say amen, you go ahead. You make all the Christians feel bad in the room. It's totally fine, okay? Is that you look at Christians and you're like, bull. Jesus makes your life and makes you better at life. Baloney. Christians have been some of the most judgmental. Christians have been some of the most hateful. I tell you what, when it came to, to masks and vaccines and all this stuff, there were some Christians that I knew that were the last in line to put the person beside them in front of them. Just don't tell me that Christians, that Jesus makes your life better, makes you better at life. Don't tell me that Christians love their neighbor as themselves. Uh-uh, I, I, don't, I don't buy that for a second. And so we've seen people deconvert from their faith. Now, why is that? Why is it that in the middle of this pandemic, so many followers of Jesus, when it was our opportunity to shine, when it was our opportunity to love our neighbor as ourselves, when it was our opportunity to put God before country, before presidents, or anything else, why isn't it that we did not shine? And the first reason I gave you was this, is Sunday school faith is that many of us grew up on a Sunday school faith where we were told everything's going to be all right. You just take your little pebble in your sling and you're going to kill that Goliath, right? Or you're Daniel in the lion's den. You could get thrown in any situation. Nothing bad is ever going to happen to you. You know, the, the Sunday school faith where you grew up and they told you that Jeremiah 29:11 was a promise from God to you. And here we are 80 years later, and you don't have any land or any blessings. And you're like going, what in the world is going on? Somebody took that out of context, right? That's Sunday school faith. And some of you, you were handed a Sunday school faith. You were handed Old Testament promises that God gave to the nation of Israel that were never intended for you. But you put them on your wall, and you bought them from Hobby Lobby, and you scribbled them in ink on your arm. And then you get to be an adult, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm not bulletproof. God is not making my life better or making me better at life at all. Well, that's why, because you weren't handed the original version of faith. And we recognize it. Trust me, Pastor Kerry and I have labored for years on combing through and picking the correct curriculum for our kids in the back because most of it is Old Testament stories. You know why? Because Old Testament stories make the best cartoons. You can't make good cartoons out of the letters of Paul. It just doesn't work. 
And so you grew up on that, right? You grew up on Daniel. You grew up on all these promises. You grew up on these Old Testament stories. And then you got to be an adult. And wow, look, that wasn't for me. Sunday school faith. The second reason is this, is that Christianity is not a reference point. It's a context. Now, to reverse that, because some of you are catching up, what I mean by that is that for many of us, Christianity Jesus is not the context for my life. He's just a reference. I make up the context. So for a lot of us, what we do is I make up the context. This is how I feel. These are what my emotions tell me. This is what I'm thinking. So I create the context, and Jesus is just a reference. But there's also this one book, and there's also this one documentary, and there's also this one thing this one guy said. And so I have all these different references, and among all of those references is Jesus. But the problem is, is that Jesus is not, a, is not a reference point. He's a context. He's the vine. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so if Jesus is not the context of your life, no doubt you're struggling. I get it. He's just a reference point. He's just a thing you do on Sunday mornings. Well, then, of course, Jesus didn't make your life, or make your life better or make you better at life because he's just a reference point, not the context, but Jesus has to be the context of your life. And we, we read from Matthew. Matthew, he wrote this down, something that Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So if you're weary and you're burdened and this pandemic has you down and it's just, it just seems so hard right now, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. But he offers something practical. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That means we have to attach ourselves to Jesus. We have to yoke ourselves. We have to have him be the context of our life, and then we have to let him lead. But we can't lead and just reference Jesus. He has to be the context of our life, and he has to lead, and we have to learn from him. We're not going to be able to teach Jesus new tricks. Some of us, that's how we live. Well, I don't think when God said this, this is what he really meant in the Bible, so let me explain this. No, 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 no. He creates the context. He's not just a reference point. And so we have to yoke ourselves to him. Now, what I want to talk about today, it's going to follow up after everything that we, we talked about. And I want to go back to that, that Sunday school faith, right? That Sunday school faith that you were taught. And I think that we've, we've gotten away from the original version. Because in the original version, when Jesus came on the scene, he invited his disciples to follow me follow me. He said, follow me. And do you know what these disciples did? They left everything. Did you know Peter had a wife? You read about her in the New Testament for those three and a half years? No, I don't think he saw her very much. I mean, they left everything. They left their jobs. They left their context. And all of a sudden, Jesus became their context. It was a thing they lived in. It was a thing that they dove into. It, they were saturated in the life of Jesus. They were his disciples. They were with him side by side. And Jesus said some crazy stuff. Jesus said stuff like this. Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. That's some weird red track suit wearing stuff right there. I mean, that's, that's, that's some weird stuff. That's borderline cultish. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus said some weird cultish stuff about losing your life and somehow finding your life. And it's, it was very, very odd. It's very weird, very scary, but it's very to the point. I mean, you all understand what that means, right? I mean, you know, it means losing something. Hopefully not your actual life, but oh my goodness, it might just be. I mean, we don't know. And so they heard these things and Jesus said these things. Then Jesus died on the cross, and then he rose again, and then he went away. And then at some point, we decided to change some things. And then in the church, you started hearing us talk about this. We started talking about believing in God. Well, all you have to do is believe. Or I remember as a kid, I, I grew up a pastor's kid, I remember hearing, all you have to do is accept that what, Je what Jesus did on the cross for you. Any of you remember that prayer, Right? That was at kids' camp. If they say that at kids' camp, you go slap somebody in the face. Sponsors, all right? 
But that's, the, that's, that's not the original version. You tell them what that says, okay? Right? But we, we, we all went through that context of, oh, if you want to accept what Jesus did for you on the cross, just go ahead and raise your hand. And you did, didn't you? Because it was so easy. All you had to do, all I got to do is, okay, I'll slip up my hand. My girlfriend's doing it, so I'm definitely going to do it. Yeah, I raised my hand, girl. I'll see you after camp, all right? I mean, that's what we do, right? All I got to do is raise my hand, great. And then we left that service, and then what happened? Nothing. We raised our hand, great. It got watered down, guys. It got watered down to just believing. But I've said this so many times. What does believing get you? Nothing. Believing doesn't get you anything. Following Jesus, though, is different. Following Jesus will make your life better and make you better at life. Believing in Jesus won't get you either. Now, I'll put this in fitness terms for you because I know you'll all understand this because you're all a very fit group, okay? Look around the room. You know, we're shooting a commercial today, so if you see a guy that looks like Fabio walking around, he's... (laughs) It's not a ghost, number one. He's real, and he is a beautiful man, but he's, he's here today. And so I told the band, told the band, I told CJ very specifically, no deep V-necks, okay? Told Chris, wear pants. This is the kind of stuff I, it's kind of notes I give. So you're all a very fit, good-looking group. I know you are, okay? But, but let's think of this in terms of fitness, okay? In terms of fitness, okay? Believing doesn't make me skinnier or skinnier at life, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Write that down. (laughs) Believing in fitness doesn't make you skinnier or skinnier at life, okay? You can believe a lot of things, and it doesn't do anything to your pants size at all. It doesn't do anything. You can believe anything you want. You can believe that that pill that you take or the the muffin that you put in your mouth is going to do something. Believing doesn't get you anything, okay? What, what, what is it? It's doing, right? It's eating healthy. It's going to the gym. It, it, it's, it's getting rest. That is what makes you healthy. That is what makes you fit. Stretching, working out. And you all know this, okay? You all know this because you're all fitness experts, because you're all beautiful people. Does one time ever do the job? No. Does one one session with, with Greg at CrossFit do it for you? No. Does, does, one, does one hour of stretching, and you're like, well, that's it. My hip's fixed. I don't ever need to do that again, right? Does that ever work? No. What is it? It's time over time over time. It's consistency. It's work put in on top of work put in on top of work put in. It's consistent decision on top of consistent decision. Wise move after wise move. That is what gets you where you want to be. So, Let's put that in terms of our faith. Let's say this. What what, what if it's this? What if faith is a muscle, and if you don't exercise it by following, it becomes weak and frail? Faith is a muscle. And here's the thing. If you don't exercise it, it gets weak. It gets frail. It is so easy to injure. You put the right amount of tension underneath that muscle, and what's going to happen? It's going to snap. Let's go back to the the question. What makes the difference? What makes the difference? Perhaps, perhaps, the difference maker between someone who loses their faith and maintains their faith during tragedy is their faith muscle. So let me ask you something. How are your faith muscles? Some of you are like, oh boy. It's been a while. That's what I always, that's what I always talk, you know, I teach CrossFit and I coach CrossFit and sometimes I'll check in on people and I'm like, hey, how are you doing? It's been a while. And here's the thing, for a lot of you, it's been a while. And the thing is, is that our opportunity, right? I mean, you can't, can't put yourself in like a, a faith gym, okay? That doesn't exist, okay? So I'm going to diverge from this illustration a little bit. I'm not going to, you know, preach like a youth pastor for a second. But, you know, I'm not going to go into like these weird metaphors. Like, it's, what, what do we do? There's no faith gym, so what do we do? Well, the thing is, is that these opportunities come during pivotal circumstances. Pivotal circumstances. And you all know what pivotal circumstances are. They're disruptive. They're catalytic. 
They're defining. They're not always bad things. Sometimes they're good things that are pivotal circumstances. I mean, like when you move, when you get married, I mean, goodness gracious, when you have kids, I mean, my, I mean, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me on my faith journey is I had kids. I mean, because, man, when you're, when you're holding that baby in your hands, good grief. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not crying. James told me it'd be better if you cried for the commercial. This is all, <laughs> this is all movie magic. <laughs> when you're holding that baby, though, in your arms... And they steal your heart. I mean, you think, my gosh, if I could connect from my head to my heart that God loves me more than I love this baby, that'll grow your faith. Pivotal circumstances give you this opportunity for your faith muscle to flex. But we also know it's not always good things. Sometimes they're tragedies. And the thing is, is that a lot of time, tragedies are even more effective than the good ones, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis talked about this. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this book called The Problem of Pain. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Isn't it true that tragedy, more than the good stuff, because a lot of times the good stuff, we just go, well, that's nice. But tragedy, grief, pain, I mean, that is the thing. That is the pivotal circumstance that gets us asking the question, where is God? And some people would tell you it's necessary. Some people tell you it's so important because you all know this to be true. We are fine without God until we're not fine. It's pain and it's tragedy that sometimes awakens our faith. Our faith that hasn't been flexed, that haven't moved. It's like we've been lying on a bed for three months. And, 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 and it, just, it just feels like we're just kind of you know, degrading and just getting smaller, just kind of shrinking. And then all of a sudden, something happens. There's that pivotal circumstance. All of a sudden, it awakens our faith. And the thing is is that when it came to the disciples, when, when, when the disciples, they, they lived through this, they saw no conflict between a loving God and pain and suffering in the world. They saw no, they saw no conflict between this, between pain and suffering and, and, and the God that they served. Because I know what some people say. Some people are like, man, look, I know you're going to try to put some twist on this and, and why God allows bad things to happen and, and this and that. But I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to try to dance around that unresolved tension because I get it. There's an unresolved tension there. But the thing is, is that when you look at the disciples the people who are with Jesus, the people who are at the epicenter of God's activity in the world, they, did not, they don't need to borrow anybody's pain and suffering. They went through it. They went through it themselves. They went through their own trials. They went through their own pain and suffering. They, they went through all kinds of, of different faith tests. And Jesus, he leveraged these all the time. And so they didn't have to borrow from anybody's. And, and, and what we understand is even through their story and what they tell us, it, when we get even to James, James in the New Testament, he was the brother of Jesus, and he, uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't follow Jesus until way after. He didn't follow Jesus before the, the crucifixion or the resurrection. He came afterwards and then became the pastor um, of Jerusalem. And he was like the head disciple, head pastor, uh, pastor uh, of, of the Jerusalem church, the Christian church. And, and he was there, and, and he comes along, and, and he tells us this. He says, trials are tests. Trials are tests. And if you, if you want to look at James and be like, well, what do you know, James? Do you know that James, even though he was the pastor of Jerusalem one time, at the end he was, he, he was accused of something that he didn't do, and he was taken outside the temple gates, and he was stoned to death. It's a terrible way to die. So, so James is not some pastor who has no context. He, he knows. He went through his own trials. And he goes, these trials that we go through are tests. That's what they are. They're tests. Tests for what? And James tells us in the very first chapter of the letter he wrote, he goes, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Or another word we could put in there as a synonym is resilience. You know that when you go through trials, your faith is being tested. And you know what? When your faith is being tested, you have the opportunity in front of you to build up resilience. Because resilience is not bestowed upon you, okay? You can't pray for resilience and Jesus tap you on the head and you got it, okay? It's not magic. It's practical. And so we get opportunities. We get pivotal circumstances to build up our faith muscles to produce perseverance. Because you all know this. Wrinkle-free days, wrinkle-free days do not create great faith, do they? Wrinkle-free days do not create great faith. As a matter of fact, wrinkle-free days weaken our faith. Do you know right now where the most dangerous place in the world to be is as a Christian? Do you know what country it is? China. Africa would be a close second if not there. Dangerous place to be as, as a Christian in China and in Africa. I mean, it's dangerous. It's illegal. It's illegal to be a Christian. Can't have a church. Can't go to church. Nothing like that, okay? Can't, definitely can't be a pastor. I'd be out of a job for sure. Do you want to know where Christianity is growing the most right now? China and Africa. Now, how does that make sense? How can that be? How can it be that in the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian, Christianity is growing nonstop and is about to grow, outgrow the faith of Americans? How can that be? It's because as Americans, we have a wrinkle-free day most of the time. And these wrinkle-free days do not create great faith. But the people in China, in Africa, who, who are being martyred, who, who are being put under great challenges, who are told that they can't go to church, church, their faith muscles are being exercised and flexed every single day, and they are better for it. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing? Yet if things start to get crazy here, we go, oh boy, hope an election's coming up soon because we can't lose that. We don't want any discomfort. Who's the guy who's voting who says he's a Christian? Oh, that guy? Oh, well, what other option do we have? I mean, that's what we do as Americans because we don't want any wrinkle-free days. We look more to the government and the laws to secure our security and comfort than we do our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we don't even understand that maybe things getting a little bit rough for us would be good for us. Because it would give us an opportunity to exercise our faith. The other thing that's going on in the world is that there are tons of really crazy conversations being had. I mean, I touched on it a little bit last week, but I mean, we're, we're having these crazy conversations about, about racism, about gender equality, about abortions, about life, about sexuality and stuff. And again, Christians are the first to be like, don't want to talk about that. You know, I don't want to talk about sex. Don't want to talk about the LBGTQ plus A thing. I don't know. I don't want to talk about that. Don't, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to talk about abortion. I don't want to talk about that for sure. Uh, I, I don't want to talk about racism. I don't want to talk about gender equality. I mean, we just, we get super uncomfortable about that. But here's the thing. I'll be honest with you. I love it. I think it's great. This is important. These conversations need to be had. I think it's awesome. I think the internet and social media that's bringing these things to light, some of them that we didn't even know or didn't have a, a place to talk about them on a huge platform, I think it's fantastic. Do you know why? It's because here's why so many Christians are frustrated. It's because you don't know what we believe until what we be claim to believe is tested. And here's what's happening. A lot of what you believe or grew up on is being tested, and you don't have an answer for it. Well, why do you believe that's wrong? It was Sunday school in 1969, and uh, it's just what Miss Essie told me to believe, you know. I don't know. The guy with the microphone was very loud and convincing when he said it. How did he say it again? 
What scripture verse did he use? Oh, we can't use that one anymore? Oh, no. I don't know why. I just don't want to talk anymore. I just know you're wrong and I'm right and you're going to hell. I mean, that's, that's the conversation that we as Christians have. I mean, I, look, I mean, I, 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 I did a po- I, I just, oh man, I wrote this in my sermon and I deleted it, but God's just telling me to say it now. Um, <laughs> it's my it's God or my gut. I don't know which one it is, but look, I, I'm pro-life, okay? I'm pro-life and I'm pro-choice and that's a weird thing. I know you can't even wrap your head around that, okay? And look, I mean, I, I, I don't want to see, I, I don't want to see anybody have to make the decision to, to abort a baby. I really don't. But I'm really, really bothered by pastors taking, again, Old Testament verses out of context. And, and so I exegeted Jeremiah 1.5 this week, how I, I would exegete it and what I think it means. And, and I put it out there on, you know, Facebook because I'm stupid. And, you know, and I, and, I, and I had people disagree with me, which is fine. I don't care if anybody disagrees with me. That's fine. That's part of the conversation. I'm not trying to fight with anybody. But you know what? I had pastors who disagreed with me and, and, and pastors who... Like, like strongly disagreed with me. You know what I mean? And, and so Kate's like, oh, you're kind of getting uh, beat up a little bit on Facebook. And I'm like, ah, it's fine. But you know what I told her was fascinating? For every single pastor who disagreed with me on how I exegeted and, and understood Jeremiah 1.5, not one single pastor responded with, to me how they would exegete Jeremiah 1.5. I just got messages like, you don't love the Bible. You don't know what you're talking about. You're crazy. I don't even understand that. But not one single person said, well, this is how I would interpret this scripture. They just got angry. You know why? Because I pushed the boundaries just a little bit. And they don't know what they believe. They just know they believe this, but they're not sure why they believe what they believe. And the moment that I even pushed a little bit of what this possibly means and why this is not good ammo to use in this conversation, they immediately just pushed back with anger and hurtful words instead of explaining their interpretation of Scripture like a mature adult. It's why we get angry. It's why our emotions get so high. It's because we don't know why we believe what we believe until it's tested. And when you can't come up with an intellectual answer as to why you believe what you believe with Scripture and Jesus and reason to back it up, then you know what? You might be wrong. And it's good. It's good to have these conversations. It's good to have these debates. Because here's the thing. A faith that hasn't been tested cannot be trusted. If you believe whatever you believe about the LBGTQ community, but haven't spoken to somebody who claims to be LBGTQ+, you don't know what you're talking about yet. Until you've loved somebody who's been through that. You can believe and claim what you want about, about abortion, but until you have loved somebody who has been through an abortion, and I have, then you really, really, really can't trust what you think you know or what you believe until you've sat down with somebody who's been through it. And I'll say the same to somebody who says that God doesn't exist because there's pain and suffering in the world. If you believe God doesn't exist because there's pain and suffering in the world, go and sit down with somebody who has been through pain and suffering in the world and still believes in God. Because what you will hear is a story. And when you hear that person's story, God will connect your heart with their heart. And then you can test your faith and see if it can be trusted. See, I stopped a long time ago just yelling truths with Scripture to back me up like I knew I was talking about, and instead I started to love people who were different than me and believed differently than me so I could understand who they were so that I could be Jesus to them. And that's how I know that my faith is rock solid. That is why I can be certain that what I believe is true because I've tested it. Peter, he was put through these faith tests, man. 
these faith tests, Jesus leveraged these all the time. Jesus put, put Peter through them as, as often as he could. There was actually a time where, where, where Jesus came up to him and said, Hey, Peter, a faith test is coming. It's going to be a really big one. And this is what he said to him. He says, But I have prayed for you, Simon Peter, that your faith may not fail. Man, what a conversation that would be. <laughs> Just like, hey, something bad is coming. Good luck. I'm praying for you. And do you know what Peter's response was? This was Peter's response. Peter said this, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. That's how I imagine Peter talking when he's coughing. <laughs> do you know what that faith test was? It was Jesus' crucifixion. I don't know if you know the story. Peter didn't do so good. <laughs> Peter ran off like a little baby. People are like, are you Peter? Aren't you his friend? Don't know that guy. Yeah, ready to run off to prison and death. Baloney. He did terrible. He failed it. He failed it multiple times. There were so many things. But you know what's so interesting? Is that then Jesus comes back and gives him another opportunity. Jesus comes back and says, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then there comes a time when we get to Acts where, where Peter and John are heading up to the temple and they see a person who has never walked before. He's about 40 years old. He's never walked before ever. And, and Jesus goes, uh, Peter goes to him, I'm sorry, and he heals him. And he heals him. And the man starts running around like a crazy person and telling everybody, I got healed and those two guys did it. And so they get arrested. And you know what is so interesting about this story? you got to be able to put these things together, but that's why I'm here, so don't have no fear. They get arrested by the same men who arrested Jesus. The same men who took Jesus to Pilate are the same men that arrest Peter and John. Oh, so you know where this is going. These guys are here to stamp out Christianity, right? This is going to be bad. So they bring them to trial the next day. They go to, they go to prison. They, they spend a night in jail. They go to trial, and they say they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? You know what they're asking? You're not still following that Jesus guy that we killed, are you? That can't be. Are you still doing that? Now, again, Peter and John, what would you do? Peter and John just kind of been like, I don't know his name. <laughs> I mean, you could have said anything. I mean, get, get out of jail free card. Say anything. But that's not what they say. This is, again, this is a faith moment. This is a pivotal circumstance. And what does Peter say? This is what Peter says. Then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified. He even calls him out. Yeah, that's right. The guy you killed. That is the one. The one who God raised from the dead. That this man stands before you healed. Peter got a little bold. Peter got buff. Peter been in the faith gym, right? I mean, all of a sudden, this guy who couldn't even claim to know Jesus, he's put in this opportunity where his life could be taken in the same way that Jesus' life was taken. And he puffs his chest up, and he goes, you know exactly who healed him. And I'm with him. And he's alive. And what you did didn't work. Man, Jesus. Peter's, Peter's, Peter's on something. <laughs> but he's excited, and he says that. And do you know what these men said? This blew these men away. This is what they say. This is how they respond. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Wow. And then you know what Peter went on to do? Just like Jesus called it, he was the rock it was the foundation of the first generation church. Here's the thing I want you to know about pivotal circumstances. Tested faith is where you discover you have real faith. Tested faith is where you discover you have real faith. And if you say, well, I can't believe in God because there's so much pain and suffering in the world. Well, here's the thing. All pain and suffering proves. Go ahead and go to that next verse. All pain and suffering proves is that there isn't a God who doesn't allow pain and suffering. 
If you say, well, I can't believe in a God who, who allows pain and suffering. Well, me neither. But my God doesn't just allow pain and suffering. He doesn't cause it. He's not behind it. It just is. And there's no connection between the two. And it's disingenuous to look at everybody's pain and suffering and, and, and to think that that's a reasonable existence that God doesn't exist. Because there's plenty of people, plenty of people in this room even, who their faith got them through their tragedy and their pivotal circumstance. And here's what we believe. You want to talk about pain and suffering? Here's the thing we believe about our God. Our God, the God we follow, so loved us that he allowed the worst thing to happen to the best possible person. Because our God doesn't cause pain and suffering, but he uses it. He takes it and he uses it to make our life better and to make us better at life. My, uh, my sister last year lost a baby. And uh, I called her this week about this sermon. And I said, hey, this is what I'm preaching about. You got, you got anything you'd say? And she said, you know, it's really hard for me because the doctors can't even explain why I lost my baby. It just, it's, it is it's, it's like supernatural. So I don't even have like a thing to wrap my head around of why I lost my baby. It just happened. So it makes it even more supernatural and spiritual to me. And I, I don't know. I, she said, I, I, God's got me through this. And, and my, my sister's pregnant again. And uh, Chloe, uh, Chloe is on the way. And I'm looking forward to meeting Chloe, but there's another niece or nephew that I, I, will, I will not meet until I go to heaven. And she said, you know, it really comes down to a choice. I, I have to choose to believe that God loves me even though he didn't save my baby. And I choose to believe that because if I choose to believe that, it makes me better and it makes me better at life. And my faith has grown through it. And I'm better prepared as a parent. And you could go through this room. You could talk to the Hakims. We filmed and, and shown the story of the Hakims. Talk, talk to the Hakims who went through tragedy with, with infertility and the story of the three boys that they adopted. And you'll hear a very tragic, sad story. You'll, you'll hear of a, a terrible course of events. But my gosh, when you talk to them now, when, when, they, when they flexed their, their faith muscles, they grew through it. They became better for it. Jesus made them better and made them better at life. And, and now God has blessed them. There's other people in this room. We could go on and on of people who who not just maintained their faith, but grew through their faith. Look, what we're going through right now, what we're still going through, it is very, very hard. But, but perhaps the reason Jesus isn't making your life better and making you better at life is because you're not running to your faith. You're not using this as an opportunity to let God grow perseverance and resilience in you. Instead, you're running elsewhere. You're running to something else because Jesus is just a reference point. He's not the context. And I'm telling you, if Jesus is not the context of your life, it won't work. But the disciples, the disciples, they would tell you this. We were there and we went through it. And we still put our faith in Jesus because the pain and suffering was there regardless of Jesus. But he got us through it and we are better for it. Can I pray for you today? Father, we come to you today. And I know that everybody in this room has their own story. God, I, I know that everybody in this room has had their own tragedy. Some of them, they're going through stuff right now. And God, in front of us is a moment, a moment to flex our faith 
muscle, to grow, to be resilient through this pivotal circumstance. God, would you help us to still remain yoked to you? God, would you help us to put our faith in you? This is an opportunity where what we believe, what we say we believe is being tested. Let us not run from this. Let us not run from this, but let us embrace it. Let us have a conversation about it. Let us hear people's stories. Would, would, you, would you help us to not run from this because it's different or it's scary or we don't have all the answers, but would you help us to talk and love and show grace to one another? Would what we believe be tested and then would what we believe become real? Would our, would our faith be cemented in you and in your word? Would you become the context of our life and not just a reference point? Would it may not be you in this book and this documentary and what this guy says, but would you, God, flood our hearts and our minds? Would you flood our emotions? Would you flood how we think? And would you become the center point, the context of our life? And would it make our faith strong, God? Would our trust in you be so complete that we would lack nothing? That is my prayer for everyone in this room. God, we love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Would you guys stand with me this morning? We're going to sing one last song and then do the baptism outside. And I, I, I want to invite you to, you know, uh, we, we've got several. Uh, Gwen, Gwen is one, and, and we have some others. that, If you want to pray during this, during this song, they're going to be available just up here at the front for, for prayer as well. But... If you just need somebody to pray over you this morning or pray for you, they're, they're here for you. But we're going to sing and worship together this morning, and then I'm going to have you guys come outside. But I am so thankful that you all are here.